Thanks, John and Trudy. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea 4 is going to be introducing us to really the rest of the book of Hosea. Chapters 1 through 3 fall into a section that described for us the the background of the prophet Hosea's life. And then Hosea 4, through the rest of the book, are the unfolding of the messages that he preached to the people of Israel. And just be warned, they're not that easy to hear. They're pretty serious. They don't mince words. Doesn't mess around. Cuts right to the heart of the human problem. And the heart of the human problem is sin. And so we have several weeks ahead of us where we get to dive into sin and its ramifications in our lives and God's perspective on it. And frankly, this is one of the good reasons that we should spend time in the Old Testament. And it's also one of the primary reasons people don't like the Old Testament is because it doesn't mince words about the topic of sin. And yet that's really the reason why we should be in it, because it is so clear in its portrayal of sin and its consequences. We might tend to gloss over it, however, like a smoker taking up a box of cigarettes doesn't even read the Surgeon General's warning any longer, just accepts the consequences for what they are, or rather just wants to ignore it. But the Old Testament is here for a purpose. The New Testament presents it to us as an example for us. It tells us to take heed of the warnings, to look at the examples that are portrayed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament itself calls out to anyone who will listen by saying, Hear! That's the very first word of our text. Hebrews or Hosea 4, 1 says, Hear! The divine and holy word of God calls out to you, Listen! Listen up. So the very first question that you have to ask as you come to a text like this is, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to hear to what it has to say to you? Are you willing to set aside any kind of complacency, any kind of willed ignorance of God's perspective on sin? Are you willing to set aside your self-righteousness that tries to portray you as better than you are? Are you willing to listen to God's word? Listen to the almighty ruler of all, the one who spoke clearly to the Israelites and calls anyone else who will listen to hear what he has to say. So I want you to listen carefully to the divine portrayal of sin and its consequences. So you'll take seriously the dangers of sin in your own life. We can't understand the setting of this without recalling what we've seen in chapters 1 through 3. It's so important to understand Hosea is a book that comes to us as a whole. We don't get to really separate it into parts as we want. We can't pick and choose the passages we like or don't like. It comes to us as a complete book. And so we need to understand that this book was written to the nation of Israel originally. Israel, a nation that was chosen by God to be salt and light in the world. They were given God's law, and because they were given God's law, they were given the responsibility to shine the wisdom of God's ways to a world that didn't know God. Israel was supposed to be a nation set apart, a nation of priests, But instead of walking in the light of God's revelation, most of the time they walked in darkness. They walked in sin. They lived in that dark abode. And Hosea is a book that compares Israel's abandonment of God to the abandonment that a wife would commit against her husband when she leaves him for another man. And so that's why in the scope of this book you hear words like adultery, prostitution, harlotry, whoredom. It doesn't leave us in the dark as to how God feels about sin. He takes it very personally. He takes it seriously. 
And so the first three chapters of Hosea detail for us the pains that Hosea the prophet experienced as he literally went through a wife he married, abandoning him for other men. And that whole picture was painted for us to, under, for, to help us understand the way God perceives the abandonment of his people when they leave him for other gods and leave him for sin. But, as we saw last week, Hosea's narration of the events of his life doesn't end with the abandonment that he experienced of his wife. It really ends with the command that God gave to him, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and has committed adultery. So the last word is really love. Hosea was called by God to go and love his wife who abandoned him to show the love that God has for his people who abandoned their God. And so as we look seriously at sin, we have to keep in mind that God, although he takes sin seriously, more seriously than any of us have ever taken it in our lives, the perspective that we need to keep in mind is God lovingly pursues an adulterous and rebellious and sinful people. So even as we hear the harsh words, we need to remember God's love. And so we consider the divine perspective on sin, and as we speak quite frankly about it, we need to remember that God is the God who sent his Son to rescue sinners. Really, there is no authority on sin better than God. Not that he has committed sin, but he knows the price of sin better than anyone else because he alone sent his son to rescue sinners. He's the only one who has provided a means of escape from sin. He's the only one who knows the cost of sin in its finality, in its totality. And so he alone is worth listening to when he speaks on the topic. 1 John 3, 8 describes our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And just a few verses before that, in 1 John 3, 5, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And you know what John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we look for somebody who can speak to us about sin, we want to look at somebody who actually knows the cost of it, who knows what it takes to get rid of it, to deal with it. And so we must listen with open ears to our God. We we must not think of God as this mean ogre in the sky who's just there waiting to crush these minuscule little sinners who rebel against him every day. He is the one who sent his one and only son to rescue sinners from their sin. And so we need to listen with all the more eagerness, knowing the God who speaks to us about sin. And so I want you first to hear the divine description of sin. Hear the divine description of sin. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of Hosea 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We hear a divine description of sin here. We're not left wondering who's speaking. It's very clear. Verse 1 says, hear the word of the Lord. That means that the word that's spoken here is the very word of God, the one who created the world, the one who made everything, who thought up this world and its ways. He's the one who is speaking here. And that means that what is spoken is spoken by somebody who's all-wise and all-knowing, who really has something to say. And now, we should listen 
We should listen just flat out because it's God speaking. But if you've done any kind of investigation into your own heart, you know that it tends to be stubborn and it tends to close its ears when it hears things that it doesn't want to hear. In 4 verse 16, describes Israel this way. It says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Picture a cow. It's just massive standing in front of you and you want it to go to the right and it wants to stay right where it is. And you can push and you can yell and you can scream. That cow's not going anywhere. It's stiff-necked. It's stubborn. It will not move. Now you've got a pasture of green grass. You've got all the green grass a cow could eat with its four stomachs. It's hungry, but you've got this green grass and you yell at it, you tell it, it's over here, go, and it won't go. That's a stubborn heifer. And that's what Israel is compared to. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. And it asks the question in verse 16, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Is that stubborn heifer going to be tenderly cared for like a lamb brought to green pastures? No, because it's stubborn. And so at the outset, we need to check our hearts. Are we willing? Is our heart supple in the hands of God? Is it willing to hear what God has to say to us? The Lord speaks, and he speaks on sin. Sin's more dangerous than handling plutonium. We need to listen up to the one who knows what to do with sin. We need to listen to our Lord. And he speaks to Israel in verse 1. It says the Lord has a controversy. The word basically means lawsuit. He has some sort of legal action that he needs to take against the Israelites. It's a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. It's a bit of a stinging opening remark that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The land referred to is the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. The land was a gift to Israel. It was a place that God had promised to the people, the Abraham's descendants. It was a gift. It was to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It was to be a land of blessing where they would know peace and protection. They'd have all the provision they would need if they merely followed the Lord. It was a gift to them. And so as this opens up and says that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, it's observing that the very inhabitants of the land are those who received a gift of grace and yet have abused it to such a degree that God now needs to come and bring a lawsuit against them. They live, they've lived surrounded by grace, surrounded by a gift, and they've used and manipulated that gift to sin against their God. And so the Lord has a controversy against them. This divine description of sin that we have here begins with what sin removes from your life. And by the way, as we go through this, my intent was to go through chapter 5, verse 7, and there's no way that we're going to go through all of this in detail. And if we went through all of Hosea in exacting detail, um, by the end, nobody would be coming back. And so my intention is to pick up some themes of each of these chapters and try to camp on those. And so forgive me if we don't get into every detail of these chapters But we'll camp here on the very opening verses as it describes for us sin. And the first thing that we observe is that sin removes certain things from your life. Notice God's accusation against the inhabitants of the land. He says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. It's all negative. It's all about what's not there, what's not present. He observes there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. It's often been observed that sin is not just what you do, but also what you don't do. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things that you actively do, actions that you take. Sins of omission are things that you should have done and you didn't do. And so sin is both what you do and what you don't do. Simple example is... If you curse someone, you curse them out, 
Well, obviously, it's a sin to curse somebody out, but it's also a sin because you didn't use the opportunity to use the tongue God has given you to bless that person. So not only did you curse them, but you also didn't bless them. And so it's a double whammy. Not only did you look at pornography, but you also robbed yourself of the opportunity to serve somebody else in love, in purity. Not only did you grumble and complain, but you missed the opportunity to give thanks to God for all that he has done for you. Not only did you boast about yourself, but you missed the opportunity to exhibit Christ-like love and humility and consider others' interests above your own. Not only were you greedy, but you were also stingy. And so we get hammered on both sides. Sin always robs you of the opportunity of doing something loving instead of something sinful. So you've double-dipped yourself into sinful practices. And as God looked at the land, the first thing he sees is the absence of good. Not so much the presence of evil, but the absence of good. There's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Faithfulness. The Hebrew word here is emet, and it means truth or reliability. It's the word that's described of God in 2 Chronicles 15.3 that says God is the true God. And that's in contrast to idols that are false. And so not only is God real as opposed to fake, but he's also true as opposed to unreliable. That's what it means here when it means faithfulness. It means that reliability, that if you give your word, you actually do what you say you will do. People know that your words mean something. You say that you're a follower of God, and you actually follow him. That's faithfulness. And when God looks at a land full of sinners, he sees no faithfulness, no one keeping their word, no one keeping their vows, promises broken. There's no faithfulness in the land. Or steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed, often associated with God's covenant-keeping love. It's a love that doesn't wear out, a love that continues, often translated as kindness. In Exodus 34, 6, it's described of God as God announces himself to Moses as to what he is like, what his character is like. He says this, that God is a God described who is abounding in loving kindness, that's hesed, and truth, that's emet. So as God looks across the land full of people, full of people who are supposed to be made in his image, and he, God, is a God who is full of faithfulness and loving kindness, and he sees all of these image bearers, and they look nothing like him. That's what he sees first. To see this lack of these things is to see a bunch of people who are made in his image and yet look nothing like him because they do not possess faithfulness and steadfast love. He goes on and says that there is no knowledge of God in the land. Well, if there's no faithfulness, and no steadfast love, and those are chief attributes of God, then of course there's no knowledge of God in the land. They don't know him. They don't know the God who possesses those in full measure. This is a key concept here, that there's no knowledge of God in the land. So let's unpack this a little bit. One theological dictionary defines knowledge, the word used here, this way. It says, it means to take various aspects of the world of one's experience into the self, including the resultant relationship with that which is known. That's a little bit heady, but simply what it means is you live in a world, and as you live in the world, you have experiences in the world, you learn things, and as you learn things about the world that you live in, you relate to them. As you learn about money, and as you possess money, you know money, and you relate to it in a certain way. You spend it on certain things, and you save it for certain things. You lose it in certain things. You relate to it in a particular way. So knowledge in this, 
in this context means more than just knowing about something. It's about having a relationship to the thing that you have learned about. And again, you can relate to just about everything in the world. Some of you experienced this in high school when you took algebra or calculus and you learned about algebra and calculus. You learned the facts about it. And then you decided to relate to it by thinking, I'm never going to need this again in my life. And you throw away your book and you throw away your homework and you dismiss it from your mind. Well, that's knowledge of a subject in the sense that you relate to it. You relate to it by dismissal. And so it's knowledge in that sense. In order to gain knowledge, it assumes that you are awake, aware, sober, and rightly perceiving the world around you, including the revelation of God in his world and creation. And so oftentimes when you see this word knowledge or to know, it involves uh, seeing as well as knowing. You see the word see or hear attached to it. So in other words, if you have your eyes closed, if you have your eyes shut, you will not gain the kind of knowledge that is advocated in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 34 and 35, it tells us about what seeing the things God has done should lead to. It says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So knowledge in a biblical sense of God involves seeing the things that he has done and um, arriving at the right conclusions based on those realities of God. So for Israel, as a nation, they saw the things that God did to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And the correct conclusion from that would be to agree with God that he is the one God and there is no other besides him. Knowing ultimately takes place in your heart. It cannot remain this abstract intellectual thing. Deuteronomy 4 verse 39 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Brothers and sisters, we need to know in our hearts that there is no other God. And if you truly know that, and you know that in your heart, then your life can't help but live in light of that reality every moment. From when you wake up until the time you go to bed. We see an example of the kind of person who perceives what happens in the reality of God, and then turns away and dismisses it. It says in Exodus 7, Verse 23, after the Nile was turned into blood, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. He saw it. He knew it in one sense, but he didn't know it in his heart. He turned away from it. He didn't take it to heart. Now, we haven't seen the Nile turn to blood. We haven't seen the plagues of Egypt. We haven't seen the Red Sea parted, but that's not necessary for true knowledge of God. Psalm 78, verse 3 through 8, is an important text. It'd be worth your time to turn there. It describes what Israel was to do as a nation and how they were to take that instance of God's great deliverance and carried it on to the next generation. Psalm 78, verse 3. Speaking of things that God has spoken in the past, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, 
We will not hide them from their children, but tell, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The means that God put in place for Israel to continue to know God was that one generation would pass on to the next generation the truths about God and his law that they might know his ways and know him. And so as we come to Hosea, in that generation, it comes hundreds of years after the deliverance from Egypt, something has failed. The generations have not carried on the task of passing on the knowledge of God by teaching the next generation the true ways and law of God. They failed. And so there arose this generation that had no knowledge of God in the land. They did not live in light of the reality of who the God of Israel is and that there is no other God. Knowing God was to be a description of an intimate relationship between God and his people where they knew him as their God and their lives were based on the reality that he is the one true God. And in place of this, in place of knowing and living in light of the reality of God and of his law. Look at what the people do. Verse 12 of Hosea 4. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. They've descended to the level of stupidity. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they talk to a piece of wood in hopes that it will answer them. That's how foolish they have become. Verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know God. And look down, it says, Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The knowledge that they have lacked is a knowledge of the law of God. And this carries on in verse 11. It says that wine and new wine take away the understanding. They've pursued drink in a place of God, and they have become corrupt in their mind. Verse 14 says that a people without understanding shall come to ruin. And chapter 5, verse 4 says, The spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. There's hope. If you turn to chapter 13 of Hosea, looks forward to a time that will come. The Lord speaks... In Hosea 13, 4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. There's still hope that a people that has rejected the knowledge of God can come back to know him, to know that he is the one true and living God. In Hosea 6, verse 6, you hear God's heart. In Hosea 6, verse 6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wasn't looking after the people to bring all of the burnt offerings they could. That was done with a hypocritical heart. He was looking for a people that would know God. And so as God looked at the land in Hosea's generation, there was no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of, the, of God. Sin had removed all of those things from the land. Now God gets into a description of what was present 
among the people in verse 2 of Hosea 4. It says, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. What a list to describe a group of people. Very quickly, swearing is not using bad language, but making an oath. In chapter 10, verse 4, it says, They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. They're promising something. I've heard recently uh, someone who would say to me, I promise to God that I'll do this or this. I swear that I'll do this or this. You say that, be careful of your words. Every word will be brought to the light. And the people of Israel were concocting these oaths that they were making, but they're empty. So it's very similar to lying, which comes next. They're swearing, lying. Lying is bearing false witness. In Exodus 23, verse 1, it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. It has the idea of when you have the opportunity to bear witness in a courtroom setting and you lie. And somebody gets in trouble who shouldn't, or somebody goes free who should be punished. And God looks at that and abhors that kind of behavior when there's a false witness. Murder, taking life without due process. Stealing, taking another's valuable property. Committing adultery. We've seen plenty of that in Hosea 1 through 3. And we recall that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin is so bad that it goes on to say that they break all bounds. There's just walls all around the place, but they're broken down because the people are so prolific in their sin that they go across every boundary, every border is crossed. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. It's just a bloodbath because there is so much sin. Now, all of these that are listed, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery, breaking bounds, bloodshed, all relate to the Ten Commandments. God set up a law. He gave a law to Israel. It was to be their wisdom among the people, and they had forsaken it. And John summarizes for us in 1 John 3, Verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. If you sum up sin, quite simply, it's lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. And the lawmaker takes it seriously. Well, that's the divine description of sin. It looks at what's not there and it looks at what is there and takes it seriously. But as this text unfolds, we find that there's another warning that kind of comes up here. And it's to beware those who lead into sin. Beware those who lead into sin. Look at verse 4. It says, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall, and it shall be like people like priests, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. This is a description primarily of the priesthood of Israel. It looks at what's going on among the leadership in the people of Israel and obviously, it's not very pleased with what's there. And so it calls particular attention to the sin of the leadership. Because as the leadership goes, so go the people. In Matthew 18, 6 through 7, Jesus has serious words when he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. All sin is heinous, but God spends time addressing those who lead others into sin. And the indictment from Hosea 4 and 5 is for all the people, but it draws particular attention to the priests. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Hear this, O priests. Give, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. No one is exempt, but you realize that the priest and the king get particular attention from God. In 4, verse 4, it says, With you is my contention, O priest. And then 5 and 6, all the yous there are singular. It's referring to a particular person. Hosea may have gone after the high priest of the day. He may have gone up to a particular individual and called them out and let them know, look, the way that you're living is completely abominable to God, and you are being rejected by God. What was the role of the priests supposed to be? They had an important role in the life of Israel. They were to offer sacrifices. They were to represent the people before God, to kind of act as a mediator between people and their God. There's another job that they were to have. In 2 Chronicles 15, uh, 3 and 4, it says, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. The priests had the job to teach the people and instruct them in the law. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 9, when the people had some sort of resolution or some problem that needed resolution, they were to go to the priests. It says, you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. They were to know the law and enough of a way to be able to minister to the people the truth and to such a degree that if there was a problem among the people, they could resolve it based on God's law. The problem with the priests of Hosea's day is captured in verse 6 of Hosea 4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, there he's particularly addressing the priest. I reject you from being a priest to me. The priests had forgotten the law of God. They'd rejected it. They weren't teaching the people it. They were living by another law. And they became guilty because of their position of authority. Their sin was really so horrific that they had corrupted the whole system of sacrifices that they were supposed to oversee and minister by to make it something that served them primarily. In Leviticus 6, verse 25 and 26, it says, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. And so God had made provision for the priests that when there was a sin offering, when somebody committed sin and they went to the temple or the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice for that sin, the priest would get the meat from the animal. That was God's provision for the priests. But look at what Hosea says about how this has been changed by the, people, by the priests in verse 8 of chapter 4. It says, They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their iniquity. The picture is that the priests are almost encouraging sin so that more sacrifices would be brought so they had a bigger take of meat. We won't get into it now, but if you read 1 Samuel 2, you'll encounter Eli's worthless sons who would manipulate the sacrificial system for such a purpose as getting more for themselves, and they were so wicked that they would sleep with women at the gate of the tabernacle. Well, 
Hosea 4, verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. And you think, why, why not? It's horrible. Well, for this reason. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And the implication is this has arisen because of the despicable practices of the priests arranging to have cult prostitutes at the places of sacrifice so that people could go indulge their flesh. The priests have just lost it. They just lost it and abused their position. Like people, like priests, it says. Well, what lesson do we take from this? First lesson is we need a priest who doesn't mess things up. The Levitical priesthood was to be a gift to Israel. And as you look at it, you see it's been just kind of torn to shreds. It's not that we don't need a priesthood. We need a priesthood. We need a priest who doesn't mess things up. I am not that guy. John is not that guy. But thank God that he sent a great high priest who went into the holy place to offer himself for the sins of his people once because his sacrifice was sufficient that time. And he went in as a righteous, spotless, blameless lamb offered on the altar of God. He was both the priest and the offering. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come to feast on people's sin, but rather to be a feast for sinners. Jesus Christ offered himself once for all. And in doing so, he fulfilled the whole priesthood. And he did it all. And so we look to him. This text doesn't show that we don't need a priest. It shows we really need a really good one. And we've been given one. But we also draw from this, like people, like their leaders. And you know how this goes. You know the ramifications of false teaching in our day. I just saw a clip of a preacher who was teaching about the title of Father for God and how that has too much gender in it. And she says, to attach male or female pronouns to God is to say that God is only one thing when God is everything To limit God to being just male or just female is as limiting as to say that the gift of marriage is only to be shared between a male and a female human, as limiting as requiring pronouns for humans to be set in stone at birth. And people were listening to her. And she was speaking in the tenderest way with a smile. And people listen. And what does that justify for them? It justifies for them two things. Not knowing God and going completely against his ways. Oh, you need to look out for those false teachers, those false prophets, those false pastors. The consequences from this type of life that was happening in Israel should make you shudder. And so that's really the last point is shudder at the consequences of sin. And just do a survey with me as we walk through this chapter. 4, verse 3. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell it dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The land feels the pain of the sin that the people have been committing. 4 verse 5. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. This is God speaking of the consequences of sin. Verse 6. I reject you from being a priest to me. I also will forget your children. 
4, verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sin against me, I will change their glory into shame. 4, verse 9, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord. 4, verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Chapter 5, verse 2, I will discipline all of them. Chapter 5, verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. In other words, they continue on with their rebellious ways and they do not turn to God. Their deeds don't let them turn back to God. In 5 verse 6, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So the consequences of sin... If you live an unrepentant life of sin, never turning from it, never turning back to God, then you will not know God and he will be hidden from you. We need to learn our lesson from other sinners. In chapter 4, verse 15 It says, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. The prophet turns for a moment to the southern kingdom and speaks to the southern kingdom Judah and says, Learn from Israel. Don't become guilty, Judah. There's this competition um, that seems to have been happening for a number of years now. It's a dirt bike competition. And it's called the impossible climb. It's this incredible, foolish action where these men, and maybe women, come with their dirt bikes to this hill that is impossible to climb with a dirt bike. And yet they start at the bottom of the hill and they rev their engine. And they take off with as much speed as they can because the hill is almost vertical. And they climb as fast as they can, going as fast as they can, making it up as high as they can. And at the very top, there's a, a ledge that will go over, and they, they try to get there. They get, try to get to the top. And as you watch these dirt bike riders go up one after another, you just see the same thing again and again. Some get halfway, some get a quarter of the way, some get three quarters of the way, but inevitably, one after the other just can't make it. But the thing that was really astounding to me was that they kept trying. Not only did they keep trying, But as one after the other would go up, and they'd get about halfway up the hill, and the bike would just flip out from under them. And now you've got a couple hundred pieces of metal and rubber coming down the mountain against you. You know what they try to do? Instead of trying to get out of the way, they try to grab the bike so that they can save their bike from getting destroyed as it tumbles down the mountain. And as they grab the bike, you know what happens? They go with it. (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) Let go of the bike. Just let it go. You're not going to make it. You don't need it again. Just let it go. What a picture of sinners riding their sin as high and far as they can go. And they get knocked off of it for a moment. And you know what they try to do? They try to cling to it. And they go tumbling down with it. We've seen this throughout history. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the way it goes. Before you get on your bike and try to ride up the hill, 
Learn from those who went before you. Don't even try it. Learn the lesson. You've got something better. You've got a Savior who lived a righteous life in your place, took the punishment for your sin, gave you His righteousness, and calls you to a holy life so that when God looks down at this church, He would see a place where faithfulness, love, and knowledge of God are present. And where swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, in all their forms, are absent. Oh, may that be our church. Let's pray. Father, we can't escape the truth of your word. It speaks so clearly. And we thank you that you have not made things difficult to understand for us. Thank you, Father, that you have made plain your perspective on sin. Lord, may we take heed. Even this week, oh God, may we live our lives in light of what we've learned this morning from Hosea 4 and 5. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to continue to be patient with us in our sin and help us, Lord, to take decisive action against it, to flee from it, to leave it behind as Christ calls us out of this world to live a righteous and holy life like he did. Oh, help us, Father. We admit our inability. We admit our weakness. We rely on you, our strength. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.